grateful that there is one gospel, and it is one in which we are called to stand. It is a firm foundation for us, and so let's pray and praise our God for this gospel as we have come to his word asking that he would minister to our hearts to remain standing firm in it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you so much. You are worthy of all praise, all glory, and honor should be ascribed to you because you are the God of our salvation. You have sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die and rise again for the payment of sins, for those who have rejected you, those who were your enemies. And we ask, Lord, that this gospel would have transformative power in the lives of those who have yet to trust in you today. And we ask, Lord, for those that do know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, that this would not be something we graduate and move on from, but it would be something, Lord, that we stand firmly in. That you would convict our hearts of our need for the gospel, our need to remember, rehearse, and rejoice in these truths. We love you, Lord, and we pray for your help. Um, As we look at this text this morning, that is your inspired word, help it to bring about conviction in our hearts on how we ought to stand firm in your gospel. And Lord, the words prepared, the thoughts ahead of time, all that will fall flat and worthless if your spirit does not work. And so we want to dependently come to you, asking that you would be glorified and that you would minister to your people for your glory. pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we were wrapping up um, Luke chapter 9, and Pastor J.D. was discussing the cost of following Christ. And we saw that following Christ required us to embrace difficulties. Pastor J.D. helped us to see how we ought to have a right expectation about external challenges that come with being a disciple of Jesus. But Scripture doesn't only instruct us about external difficulties. It also teaches us to expect and address internal challenges as well, even conflict among fellow Christians. If you open your Bibles with me to the book of Philippians, we're going to be talking about this topic of conflict among believers. And in Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, Paul is addressing a conflict among two individuals at the church in Philippi. And the truth is, we know this from our experience, we know it to be true because of Scripture, that where people are, there will be conflict. The church can be accurately described as a collision of sinners. There can be, in the church, doctrinal strife. There can be opposing opinions. There's differences about how we ought to do ministry, what kind of music we should play, what kind of carpet color we should pick. There can be disagreements among leadership teams. There can be contention over how to handle finances to invest in God's kingdom for God's glory. There can also be relational conflict. Conflict in marriages. Conflict between parents and children. Conflict between men and women in the church. We experience these pains. But through the preaching of God's word and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The church ought to be a place not where conflict is absent, but where conflict is addressed. And in our text, Paul models for us what it looks like to address conflict in the church. 
Look with me at Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. He writes, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat you, Odia, and I entreat Syntyche, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. The central idea that is modeled for us in our text this morning is that servants of Christ address conflict in a Christ-centered way. It's a simple truth. That as believers, as followers of Christ, we need to address conflict in a way that glorifies God. But this simple truth is often hard for us. I would say most of us probably don't love conflict. We don't sign up for it. We don't love the idea of butting heads with others. It's not our favorite thing to do. And if you're someone who likes conflict, I'm sure after the sermon you'll come tell me that you're one of those people who disagree with me. But if we are to be faithful servants of Christ, we must stand firm in the Lord. And one of the ways that we do this is by addressing personal conflict amongst believers. And we ought to do it in a way that shows Christ is supreme. Paul brings up this topic of addressing conflict under this primary heading command in verse 1 where he calls us to stand firm. This is an idea he previously mentioned in chapter 1, Verse 27, flip back a page and you'll see in chapter 1, verse 27, and you should star this verse as a key verse for the whole book of Philippians. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. What does that look like? Well, he tells us later in the verse, he says that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. In chapter 1, Paul called believers to stand firm against external opposition. But in our verses, Paul returns to that familiar command in chapter 4, verse 1, saying, Therefore, stand firm thus in the Lord. And then he proceeds to apply this truth, this command, to relationships within the church. In the opening verse of chapter 4, Paul is building a bridge from chapter 3 into some practical application for us as believers. Paul started chapter 3 imploring these believers to rejoice in the Lord, and he proceeded to show us what does it mean to rejoice in the Lord. In chapter 3, he showed us that rejoicing in the Lord is to supremely treasure Christ by sprinting towards Christ's likeness as citizens trusting in Christ's return. It was all about Christ. It's a love for Christ that compels living for Christ. And Paul wants to emphasize the necessity of living according to the gospel, even among believers in the church. And the primary action he calls them and us to is to stand firm in the Lord. This idea of standing firm has the undertones of a military commander shouting to soldiers that are under siege, hold the line, don't give way, don't abandon your post. This is a call for us to endure through difficulty. 
We must persevere amidst pressure. And there's implications. That this, this command implies for us that we must see opposition a certain way. We ought to see conflict in the church as an opportunity to obey our marching orders. For one reason or another, we tend to miss the urgency and necessity of this command. For someone that's bathing on, um, in the sun on the beach in Florida, they might hear the words, stand firm, and it's really a theory, a, a really marvelous, romanticized idea of strength. But for those soldiers who were dropped at Omaha Beach on D-Day in Normandy, France, those words were a life and death reality. It was necessary for them to stand firm, both for themselves, for their comrades, and for winning the war. But Paul does not intend for us to be left terrified and shaking in our boots, so to speak. He points out the source of our strength in which we are to stand firm. We stand firm in, he says, the Lord In the verses right before, we were reminded that it is the Lord Jesus Christ who is in heaven, the one for whom we eagerly await to return. And he is the one who he said in the last verse of chapter 3 that has all power, even to subject all things to himself. Lord is the name of the authoritative, almighty God, and it belongs to Jesus Christ alone the one to whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And as citizens of heaven, your commander in chief, the Lord Jesus Christ, gives you marching orders. He says, stand firm, not in your own abilities, not in your talents or your skills or your personality type, not in your own strength, but our gracious Lord says, stand firm in me. In the power of the almighty, omnipotent Lord, Jesus Christ. But Paul is not so indirect as to leave this church guessing as to how they should apply this specific command. In the next verses, Paul starts naming names. He starts stirring the pot. He's getting to meddle in amongst personal issues in other people's lives. He points out conflict among believers in the church And tells them to address it. And in doing so, he's helping them to see this simple fact. Standing firm in the Lord requires dealing with personal conflict. Can you envision being there at Philippi? Epaphroditus finally returns home and you gather the church together to celebrate his return and to hear about how Paul's doing And the elders there open up this letter and start reading it aloud to the church. And the pastor gets to chapter 4 and he's like, maybe we'll uh, we'll end there for right now. No, Paul just talked about how he loves us. Man, we're so excited. Keep going. We want to hear. What's next? Yikes, right? (laughs) To help us understand this text better, I thought it would only be fair if we did a little role play. Okay, I'm going to be Paul. And you guys be the church at Philippi. And I'm just going to start calling out names of active conflict in the church. And we're going to have you guys get together and we're going to deal with it. How's that sound? No? (laughs) 
yeah, yeah, that sounds, sounds a little stressful, right? And we laugh because we think, wow, that wouldn't go too well. <laughs> or maybe we might think, that wouldn't work. Can you imagine what would happen? The guys would get the boxing gloves out, right? You put your set on, you put your set on, just hash it out, right? We'll get a little couple bruises, we'll walk away, but we didn't address the issue, we'll just sweep it under the rug. Others might just overflow in anger and vomit all their hurts and pains on others, thinking that they're trying to resolve conflict, but really they're just stabbing one another, making more wounds. The result would be division, disunity amongst the body of Christ. Many of you have experienced the real pains of conflict, even from other believers. You've seen it end in disaster. Many of you, to be frank, come from other churches. You come out of conflict with believers, and it scars you. And many of you, the conflict isn't even always a wrong thing, right? There are right times where we address conflict. We bring it up because it's a doctrinal issue. It disobeys Christ. It's worth dealing with conflict. But that doesn't mean we dealt with that conflict in a Christ-like way. And those pains of bad conflict and disaster, they leave us gun-shy of dealing with any other conflict whatsoever. They leave us hopeless for reconciliation and restoration, even with fellow believers. But friend, where there is no hope, hatred can grow. When we avoid conflict because of bad experiences, we're acting out of fear, not out of faith. And if our church is full of conflict-averse believers, sin will settle into hearts of saints. Animosity will drive wedges between marriages and households and families. Lines will be drawn. Disciples of division will grow while the mission of Christ is neglected. An unwillingness to deal with conflict always leads to division. But those who are called to stand firm in the Lord, that's us, we are called to deal with conflict within the church in a way that is centered on Christ Jesus. When in conflict, we naturally shift to a defensive mode. We become protective. And if we're focused on self and protecting ourselves, that means I have two options. Either I hurt you to protect myself, or I simply deflect everything you say, because I'm not going to take any hurts. In conflict, we become so focused on being right that we don't care about displaying the righteousness of Christ. But scripture calls believers to a better way of dealing with conflict, one that isn't focused on self, but that is focused on Christ Jesus. And if we as believers at Redemption Hill are to stand firm in the Lord, we must commit to addressing personal conflict among believers biblically. As we walk through our text this morning, my desire is to equip our church to both see conflict as an opportunity to trust in our Savior, 
to glorify him, and to equip us to commit to address conflict in a Christ-centered way. In our text, we will see three commitments for addressing conflict in a Christ-centered way. The first commitment we find in our text is a commitment to loving one another as the family of God. Look with me again at verse 1 as we read it. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Before jumping into addressing the conflict in the church at Philippi, Paul unloads a dump truck full of love and compassion for these saints. Paul does not assume that they know his love for them, although he said it earlier. He doesn't presume that they know his feelings based on their past friendship. He opens the floodgates of affection, and he describes his deep personal love for these believers. Notice the personal nature in this verse. He says, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, my beloved. Paul has great love for all these fellow saints, and he expressed that for even these women as well. In verse 2, he makes a loving appeal to both of them, entreating them to agree, excuse me, in the Lord. It's a motivation of love for these women as sisters in Christ that causes him to urge them to deal with their conflict. In verse 3, he specifically states that these women are those who labored side by side with him in the gospel. They were his co-laborers for Christ. But this sort of abundant and personal love is not flattery. It's not self-serving. It's not a setup to try to get a jab in. No, it's, it's Christ-centered love for Christ's church. If you turn back a page to chapter 1, verse 8, we find the source of Paul's love. He says, For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul was so radically shaped by the love of God that it transformed his thoughts and affections toward other believers. Paul would declare it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.14. He says, For the love of Christ controls us. It's the amazing love of Christ that makes me alive and redeems me and even compels me to do insane-sounding things like loving like the family of God and addressing conflict in the family. Salvation doesn't merely pay your debt and forgive all your sins, although that is a monstrous gift of God. Scripture tells us that we are to be radically even united through the salvation. We're united with Christ. We are repeatedly in Scripture, the joyful phrase, we are in Christ. That means if I'm a believer and I'm in Christ, and you're a believer and you're in Christ, we are in Christ. We're in the same family. We've been adopted. Repeatedly in this letter, Paul uses this family-type language. He says the word brothers. In chapter 1, he refers to Philippi, this church, as brothers. He even refers to the saints in Rome as brothers. He also, in chapter 2, referred to Epaphroditus as my brother. 
In chapter 3, he ramps up three times. He would say in verse 1, my brothers rejoice in the Lord. In verse 13, brothers, I do not consider what I have as my own, that I've made it my own. In verse 17, brothers join in imitating me. Brothers, brothers, brothers. What we ought to see here and observe is that Paul has a practice conviction of loving as the family of God. And just as Christ's love for us is affectionate and active, so our love for our brothers and sisters in the Lord ought to be affectionate and active. Paul intensifies this family connection by stating this next phrase in verse 1. He says, whom I love and long for. This is a strong desire and a yearning affection that desires the greatest good of another. And as the family of God, the greatest good we can desire for one another is that our brothers and sisters would finish well. And that's why Paul says, my joy and crown. Paul is a personal investment in these saints. It matters to him how they finish the race. This idea of crown refers to a, a laurel wreath given to victors in athletic events. The Philippians to Paul were a wreath of honor showing Paul's faithful service for Christ. And Paul knows that for them to finish well, they must stand firm in the Lord. Because these are those who are his dearly beloved. Loving one another as the family of God must be a practiced conviction. If we are going to be able to address conflict in a Christ-centered way. Francis Schaeffer was speaking from years of experience in ministry when he wrote this. He said, I have observed one thing among true Christians in their differences in many countries. What divides and severs true Christian groups and Christians. What leaves a bitterness that can last 20, 30, even 40 years is not the issue of doctrine or even the beliefs that cause the difference in the first place. Invariably, it is the lack of love and the bitter things that are said by true Christians in the midst of their differences. If we are going to stand firm, we must address conflict with the love of Christ, a love that sees one another as the very family of God. But I want to be clear this morning in speaking on this topic of conflict. There's nothing wrong with Christians disagreeing with one another on personal matters. They can even try to persuade each other about how they come to their convictions on certain topics. But what is wrong, according to Scripture, is loveless conflict that ends in hate and bitterness. Believer, you must commit to loving one another as the family of God. It's who we are in Christ. And this love must be practiced and grown daily so that when conflict arises, we see it as an opportunity to maintain the blood-bought unity we have as the family of God. As I was studying this text, I was actually blessed in the Lord's providence um, to have an interaction with a church member recently that was a beautiful depiction of exactly what this is supposed to be. I had a brother in Christ who wanted to talk to me about a difference, 
something that we probably disagree on. And I was praying about it, saying, Lord, help me to be teachable. Help me to be humble. I want to learn. And he invited me over to his home, bought me a sweet treat. I mean, brilliant move, (laughs) right? But here's what the best part was that made the conversation just amazing. The first thing he said, knowing that there was going to be differences of opinion, he said, I want you to know my goal in this conversation is fellowship. My goal in getting together you is is that we are brothers in Christ, and I want to just fellowship with you as my brother. Yeah, we're going to talk about some differences, but we're family. And man, I was blessed in that conversation. So blessed. Because we opened God's word, we read it together, and we ministered to one another. And even though the difference is, we were able to have harmony with one another. Because we said, we're family. Christ is most important. And we're able to love one another, even though there's differences. Many of us have experienced the pains of negative experiences and bitter conflict with believers. But scripture calls us to address conflict in a more excellent way. 1 Peter 4, 8 summarizes this commitment well. It says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Why? Why would we do this? He says, since love covers a multitude of sins. Not only do we see in our text a commitment to love, but secondly, we see in our text a commitment to pursuing harmony through humility. Look with me at verse 2. He continues, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche. Agree in the Lord The only information we have about this conflict is what we find in this passage. It appears that Euodia and Syntyche were well-known church members at the church at Philippi. But there was a long-standing conflict that was undealt with. We are not told what the argument's about. Um, It's likely it was a personal issue, not really doctrinal. Um, It seems that way because if it was a critical doctrinal error, Paul would have addressed it. He would have said, she's right, you're wrong, let's set the record straight. We need to submit to the authority of God's word. That's what he did in other letters. But he doesn't even acknowledge the subject of the conflict, and he doesn't pick sides. What he does is emphasize in his appeal to each individual that they ought to have the right goal. And the goal, he says, is to agree in the Lord. What is your goal when you are amidst conflict with another believer? Are you trying to prove you're right and they're wrong? Are you trying to make them see it your way? Are you trying to make them pay for the pains that they've caused you? What is the result you're actually aiming for and expecting? We would be wise to define our objective according to God's word before jumping into addressing conflict with believers. Often conflict blows up simply because we jump in, guns a-blazing, firing left and right like it's the wild, wild west. But even in gun safety class, they tell you to aim before you shoot, right? Simple principle. Because if you don't, people are dangerously hurt. Paul here draws a target for these women, 
and he urges them to agree in the Lord. This here is a call to live in harmony with each other. This is the same Greek word that Paul used in chapter 2, verse 2, when he appealed, complete my joy by being of the same mind, by having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. This same-mindedness believers are called to is the very mind of Christ. It's a mindset of humility. And as we know from chapter 2, humility is, one that is, is a mindset that esteems the other person as more important than myself. And that's why our goal in addressing conflict ought to be pursuing harmony through humility. This pursuit was a primary concern for the apostles in the early church. Paul asserted in Romans 12, 16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Neither be wise in your own sight. The apostle Peter also concludes in 1 Peter chapter 3, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, and a tender heart and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. If we engage in personal conflict with an agenda other than harmony through humility, we will not be dealing with conflict in a Christ-centered way. Because what is missing is the humble mind of Christ. And whenever humility is absent, friends, Pride is present. If our goal is to make their opinion equal to my opinion, it will end in disaster because God opposes the proud. But if our joint goal together in conflict is to have our mindsets equal to the mindset of Christ, we will be able to work through our differences peaceably because we are in submission to Christ as Lord. The true ugliness of our pride is that we try to take the place of the Lord in this very sentence. Our goal is that you are in agreement with the assessment of Stephen. What we're believing is that my assessment is the Lord's assessment. So you need to bow to me as Lord. Friends, this sort of pride must be confessed to God as sin. He alone can forgive your sin and cleanse you from all pride. He will help you resist this strong temptation to make people bow to you. The union we have in Christ must be maintained through humility. We must forsake our proud expectations in conflict to try to make people conform to the image of ourselves. And friends, when we joyfully pursue living in harmony through humility, what we're doing is displaying the marvelous mindset of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Where there are people, there will be conflict. And every conflict is an opportunity to display the love of Christ and his humble mindset. Friends, if, if you assume, as people say, that you're the smartest person in the room, that's dangerous when coming into conflict. You may not blow up at somebody, but if you don't listen to them and you dismiss them as dumb, 
You're not addressing conflict. You're actually being passive and proud. Instead, we ought to come in humility, acknowledging God's the only one who's omniscient. I need to ask questions. I need to show concern. I ought to show compassion. Because I love my brother and sister in Christ. I want to see them right with him. Don't let pride take root in your heart. Don't believe it's lies. In pride, we actually think humility looks like weakness in an argument, especially in conflict. But the truth is that pride is brittle as a twig, and humility is as strong as an ox. Pride is puffed up, but empty. It's like a giant balloon that pops at the softest needle prick. Humility is different, though. It's totally submitted to God's will, which means it's totally dependent on God's power. When we know our frailty and our weakness, friends, then Christ's power can be displayed through our humility. Pride will avoid conflict out of fear. Humility shows faith in God and addresses conflict. Pride explodes when anger is attacked. But humility is sturdy in the face of anger because it has nothing to defend. It doesn't matter in conflict if the other person is 1% right and you're 99% right. What matters is that conflict is an opportunity to glorify Christ and say, I am guilty. This is my sin. Will you please forgive me? Not as a way to make them also apologize. That's not my expectation. But in love, I confess my sin, and I walk in humility, and I let God deal with the results. Friends, we need to walk in humility, and this will be a pursuit for harmony with one another in our differences And when you walk in humility, you personally will experience the peace that God alone can give. They may not have responded perfectly. They may not have said everything in a way that honors Christ. But you can say, I sought to love them as family, which honors God. I sought to be humble and receive everything I could to display the humility of Christ. And friends, Jesus Christ is the model of humility. He shows the immeasurable strength of this characteristic because Jesus Christ, as the Son of God, took the form of a servant, co-equal with the Father in glory and splendor and might, took on flesh. And the reason he did this was to be despised and rejected. He was falsely accused. Can you see Jesus being grabbed by the soldiers saying, who do you think you are? That's not what he did. As he was beaten and punched in the face, saying, do you know what you're doing? He didn't revile in return. And friends, Jesus was 100% right. But he humbled himself. And this is why he was nailed to the cross and died. It's so that those who trust in him, those who were his enemies, could be redeemed and forgiven all their sin and adopted into his family. The 
the hard reality for us as Christians is that when we are treating our brothers and sisters as enemies, when we have hatred in our heart for them and bitterness towards them, we're actually opposing Christ, his body, his blood, the unity that he's accomplished. And in our pride, we are living in direct disagreement with the gospel that we have received. If we are to be faithful as a church and as Christians, we must address conflict in a Christ-centered way by committing to love one another as the family of God and by pursuing harmony through humility. The third and final commitment in our text is this. It's a commitment to helping fellow saints focus on Christ's mission. It's a commitment to helping our fellow saints focus on Christ's mission. Look with me at verse 3. He says, Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. If the first commitment was centered on having the heart of Christ, and the second commitment was having the mind of Christ, this third commitment is centered on the mission of Christ. What we find in verse 3 is that addressing conflict is not only a concern for those directly involved, but that other believers should engage in helping address the conflict for the sake of the gospel. Paul is bringing up this topic publicly He's getting involved. And while he was away, he asked this true companion to help these women. We can't know for sure who this true companion was, but it was at least a call to a faithful co-laborer in Christ to step in, to help take steps toward mending their discord. This word used here for help is an aggressive and strong word. It was used in the Gospel of Luke, even. Jesus, after teaching from Peter's boat, he instructed the fishermen to cast his nets for a catch. And even though Peter had caught nothing all night, he obeyed. He, he let down the nets. And there was this miraculous, huge amount of fish in the net. And what Peter does is, in Luke 5, 7, he records, they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. Their boat was sinking, this huge weight they couldn't carry themselves. This is not a passive sort of help that says, hey, let me know if you need any help. By the way, uh, I really hope you don't need my help. No, this is Paul saying, take hold of this situation. Grab on with both hands and help bear the load. It's like a giant siren saying, Bob, it's time to engage right? You need to get in on the conflict and help these women. For Paul, the fellowship and support of the body of Christ was pivotal part of standing firm in the gospel, of striving and laboring side by side for Jesus Christ. And we do that by opposing conflict, not just individually, but we do it together we help one another pursue peace together. Dissension and division and disunity always have a devastating impact on the church's testimony. An unaddressed conflict jeopardizes the witness of the gospel to which we are called to proclaim. 
This is why threats to the unity of Christ's church must be confronted in a Christ-centered way, in a way that keeps Christ's mission the focus. Both these ladies and these helpers need to be reminded that Christ's mission is the priority, not their personal agenda. And friends, so many times when we're in conflict with one another, we need to zoom out because we think this is all about me. This is all about my objective. And we need to remember Christ's mission. Paul zooms out in this way, such a peaceable, wise way. He describes these women as co-laborers in the gospel. And this ought to inform us and set our expectations that even mature, faithful, committed believers can become so focused on themselves that they're broiled in controversy. I think sometimes we fail to respond rightly in conflict because we're so... How, how could... Oh... I mean, if the world sins against us, we're like, yep, yeah, I get it. They don't know Jesus. But a believer? Oh my goodness, you better not. I mean, we get so frustrated. They should know better. How dare they? They're such a sinner. Oh yeah, right. There it is. We're all sinners still, right? We've been saved from the penalty of sin, but the presence of sin we long for transformed bodies. And that's something only Christ can do. We need to submit to Christ's mission and his priorities. And this is what Paul has been emphasizing as the theme of this book, is this idea of joyfully serving Christ, and that we do it together. But we often forget our identity, don't we? We forget what it means to be a servant of Christ. We are those who are saved by Christ to live for Christ until eternity where we get to be with Christ. This life is not about you and it's not about me. It's about our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. And as we live for him, we will help others in the race address their conflicts. And although we have a natural fear of engaging conflict this willingness to address issues should feel more like an instinct. Scripture describes the church as a body. Just imagine for a minute if you stubbed your toe or a knife was dropped in your foot. Your brain doesn't go, well, the foot's way down there. I'm not worried about that. No, like everything starts firing in your nervous system. You're like, whoa, what's going on? Hey, I need to look at what's going on. There's a lot of pain down there. I need to help fix it. This isn't good. Friends, that's how the body of Christ is meant to operate. It doesn't mean we jump into everything, right? But when we're notified and made aware, we ought to be part of the solution. And sometimes that means when somebody in the church comes to you with their conflict, and it becomes a gripe session. First statement, have you talked to the person? Man, they're your, they're your brother or sister in Christ. And I know that that can be a really scary thing because you don't know how it's going to go. If you need me to, I'm, I'm willing to come. I, I want to be a part of the solution. 
We ought to be pursuing loving one another as the family of God. And that means we do it together. For those who are involved and members of our church here, we need to be ready and equipped to help address conflict in a Christ-centered way. We need to believe that by the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, two believers can agree in the Lord. The minute we resign to say, not my problem, is the same minute we actually disengage from the mission God has called us to. If we don't lovingly and humbly address sin, and we believe the lie that, well, that's just their personality type, or, hey, you can't teach an old dog new tricks, then we're not pursuing Christ's mission. We're actually just trying to protect our desire for comfort. And we're acting out of fear, not out of faith. We need to be reminded of the immeasurable love of God. We need to see the glory of the humility of Christ. And when we remember the authoritative commission of Christ, we will, in faith, address conflict with our brothers and sisters in love. It's only in the Lord that we can stand firm. It's only in the Lord that we can actually live in harmony with one another. And it's only in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ that we find the courage and the wisdom to address conflict. And the beauty of this truth is that when local churches are actually um, taught according to God's word to live according to the gospel, even amidst conflict in their daily lives, people are actually more willing to admit failure They're actually willing to confess their sins one to another. And they're actually willing to ask for help before it becomes a full-blown crisis. And the reason is, is because what we're not saying here is, hey, church, conflict makes us look bad to everybody out there, so everybody just needs to get along and just pretend like you love each other. Friends, that's not what we're saying. That's actually avoiding conflict, not addressing it, right? Where there are people, conflict will arise. But if we are focused on Christ's mission, we will see conflict as an opportunity to glorify God through love and humility and helping one another. And, when you're, uh, and whether you're a member of our church or not, if you're not an involved in personal relationships with other believers, if you're isolated and by yourself, if you don't have those who speak into your life, those who encourage you and exhort you, those who comfort you and challenge you, friend, you're in a dangerous place as a believer. The more isolated you are from the body of Christ, the more difficult it is to stand firm in the Lord because it's something we do together. Addressing conflict is not easy, it's difficult. And matter of fact, doing it God's way is even impossible on our own. We need God's grace. Our attempts to resolve or even run from conflict end up in revealing either our pride or our fear. But when we come to God and acknowledge our desperate need for him to work in and through us, we will commit by God's grace to engage conflict, and we'll address conflict with one another with the heart of Christ and the mind of Christ, 
for the mission of Christ. And the reason is, is because as servants of Christ, we are called to address conflict in a Christ-centered way. Would you pray with me? Lord, we recognize our desperate need for Jesus Christ. We are those who, even now in our church, have conflict going on, more than what any of us could even know. And Lord, I pray that you would give us courage to look to Christ in faith, to see what Christ has accomplished in the gospel is where we are standing, and that it ought to inform the way we address conflict amongst our church family. Help us to see one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, to act like your family. Lord, help that to be deposits of love through building one another up and speaking truth. Help that to be acts of kindness and love as we seek to encourage one another with texts and letters and postcards. All these things glorify you and show and build one another up in love. Help us, Lord, to, and before we address conflict, to come to you humbly. Ask that you would reveal sin in our heart. Help us to have a willingness to serve Christ, to walk in humility as we address conflict. Lord, we believe that you are Lord of all. Help us to not lose sight of you. Help us to forsake our sin and pride. Help us to respond to your preached word in obedience for your glory, not expecting perfect results or other Christians to be perfect in the way they confront us or deal with issues, but instead to humbly say, Lord, teach me your ways, O Lord. Help me to walk in your truth and give our church a united heart to fear your great name. We love you, Lord, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.